I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Forward. Planet Forward has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Forward in spring or online at planetforward.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Day. We talk about current and future issues facing law enforcement, crime scene, and forensic investigation with subject matter experts. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Last show, we had Vinny Montez, a officer out of Colorado, give us some insight on law enforcement in Colorado. We had some questions about legalization of marijuana and how that's affected law enforcement. If you missed that episode, check it out. He also, to deal with stress is a stand-up comedian and we have some links in the past show to his stand-up show and uh, dry bar comedy where you can see his full performance. In the upcoming week we're going to be having Chief Alan Banks from Round Rock PD. In this uh, month's uh, edition of Police Chief where they had great ideas for 2020 shaping the future of policing they had uh, different ideas from law enforcement from around the world, and one of those ideas was from Round Rock uh, Police Department. The chief there created what's called Operation Front Porch in dealing with uh, packages in the community. So we're going to talk to him next week, talk about Operation Front Porch. In the uh, news of policing and such, uh, one thing that I wanted to make everybody aware of is some of the different conferences that are going on with covid uh, obviously, most conferences have gone online, so we do miss out on the networking. We miss out on a lot of the uh, exhibit halls and those type of things, but the education that we receive at the conferences and the new information that we receive is very important. So a couple of things that uh, some of it may be advantageous, the fact that it's gone virtual. Uh, one conference that's coming up uh, pretty soon is the IACP Drug, Alcohol, and Impaired Driving for 2020. It's between August 6th through the 8th, and that is also an online uh, conference. Now, one of the issues with conferences is the cost of travel to get there. And many people are not able to go to these conferences because just a hotel room, even $100 a night, uh, you're going to be there for four or five days and then... Uh, the per diem of meals, if you get per diem, and many times these are not local. You have to either travel by uh, uh, airfare uh, or travel in a car. Either way, uh, there's expense that can run anywhere between uh, $1,000 just in travel, and that's not to mention the cost of the conference. So many agencies that normally would not be able to get this information are able to get it uh, because of these things going virtual. So that's one coming up that um, if you have a DWI unit, if you have a DRE unit, anybody who deals with uh, drug alcohol impaired driving, that may be a conference coming up that you want to check out. Again, it's uh, within a week or so. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, you have to hop on that pretty quick. Now, a couple of others that are coming up, and there's a little bit of time before those happen, but uh, to make you aware of, uh, one is the Crimes Against Children Conference. It happens in Dallas every year. And there's about 4,000 people who normally attend. Uh, it covers uh, many aspects of crimes against children. We have our uh, prosecutors there, the detectives that work the cases, along with forensic nurses, counselors, the uh, forensic interviewers, 
and also the computer crimes and all the sponsors from those computer crimes and the latest technology that we use to track down uh, child predators online. This year, obviously, another one that has uh, gone online. So uh, many opportunities to go if you normally do not get to attend and also a massive uh, decrease in price if uh, you go to their uh, registration. I think normally it's about a $600 conference and it's down to $300 uh, if it's uh, paid prior to December 31st. The other thing that is unique about these conferences is they're going online is that they do not expect you to be in front of the computer uh, for you know the eight hours of a normal conference or that type of thing or that you would miss out on it. Just about all that I've seen so far have an option that you can go later on, that these will be recorded, you can view them for six months later, a year later, uh, whatever the time frame is, which is a great opportunity. I know I've attended Crimes Against Children conference many times, and one of the problems in attending is there's so many people in some of these uh, uh, lectures, uh, some of the lectures that are going on are very popular, and for you to attend... Obviously, there's only so much room in uh, the presentation, and many times you would have to skip a presentation to go wait at the door just to try to get a seat. So with this going virtual, we're not going to have that issue. We're actually going to be able to uh, see the presentations, not miss out on them, and there are over 100 speakers at this conference, and uh, I think normally there's even more than that. But it's, it's a huge event, and this is just a great opportunity to go and check this out. And so that's for our Crimes Against Children unit, uh, detectives, prosecutors. Then uh, the big conference that happens every year, which is the Air National Association Chief of Police for Administrators and Management, uh, that also is going virtual. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, in October in New Orleans, and so we're certainly missing out on... Uh, going to New Orleans and just enjoying the atmosphere there and again the networking but same thing they're going to be doing it online they're going to be saving those uh, classes uh, that are on there and registration currently if you're an ICP member is $200 if you're a non-member it's $425 uh, I believe that that uh, actually adds to that you actually get uh, your membership paid for but I'm not positive on that but again, they're going to have these uh, accessible for 12 months uh, after the actual conference. And they have uh, listed at 150 different educational workshops that are going to be going on. So those are just a couple of the conferences that are out there. It's certainly uh, worth checking into. Uh, it is a, a lower cost option than normally when we go to these conferences. And we certainly don't want to miss out on the education value that's out there, the new trends that are happening, the new technology that's happening. It's always uh, the next level. We always go to our basic classes and we learn our foundation of our investigation, our principles, our management, but it's the ongoing uh, educational workshops and the presenters that uh, come up with the new material that is always beneficial in the upcoming years and let us know what's happening around the country and around the world. Uh, with the latest and greatest uh, techniques and technology and those things. So check out those conferences and hopefully you can get some people there uh, and have a benefit of not having to travel and being able to do this uh, virtually. So moving on to this week of law enforcement news and law enforcement today on July 28th 
stated that more than 100 police agencies have pulled out of a security agreement for the Democratic National Convention. As much as we really don't uh, discuss straight politics on this show, but honestly, more recently, it's become more of a, a gray area between uh, the political protest and the reactions to covid and what police agencies are doing and and what what brought this up in milwaukee is where the democratic national convention is supposed to be held on august 17th is that the milwaukee chief for that area in a restructuring of the police department or uh, in changing policies has banned tear gas and pepper spray and there's supposed to be a thousand officers that respond from outside agencies some surrounding agencies to deal with the convention as we know that one agency just a single agency cannot handle such of an event as that no different than we're over here close to houston and even when uh, houston hosts things like the super bowl and uh, large events like that uh, hpd houston police department harris county sheriff's office they also have outside agencies from surrounding counties and such. It's just such an event trying to handle. So it's not surprising that they had that many officers expected to attend, but they've pulled out, and that's not surprising either, uh, considering that uh, those changes are affecting the officers who show up to assist. And some of the chiefs from the surrounding area, uh, chief from Franklin, uh, Wisconsin, also made the uh, comment that uh, it's apparent there's lack of commitment to uh, provide the Milwaukee Police Department with the resources it needs to ensure the safety of peaceful protesters, attendees, citizens, police personnel. I cannot send personnel if they're not properly equipped or will not be allowed to engage in appropriate actions which would ensure their safety. And another police chief, uh, Daniel Thompson, uh, said that he would also not be sending any officers that, uh, quote, I understand the use of chemical irritants and pepper spray is serious, and they are only to be used when legally justified, but when you take that out of the continuum, that doesn't leave officers much other than getting harmed or using deadly force, and that's not good for any officer or the public. So even the chief recognizes the uh, lack of officers being there uh, is going to be detrimental to possibly the safety and uh, has expressed that uh, he may have to turn to the National Guard or asking for federal officers to be deployed for assistance in the absence of the local officers. So that's currently happening as we see all the different protests from uh, around the nation. It's during times like this that we turn to our public information officers and working with the community to communicate with them and rebuild or build the trust with our community. One expert in that which is Judy Powell. She was on episode six, who is, was a PIO with many departments and now serves consulting in crisis management with departments nationwide. So in our interview, she talked about the role and the importance of communication with the community and building those relationships. 
Well, you know, if we didn't have public information officers, I don't think too many police departments would put public information as number one when something happens, especially crisis. Um, public information officers, much to the chagrin sometimes of the media, are there really to serve them and to communicate with our community. I think folks need to realize that PIOs are there to help get information out. Uh, it is their main job to communicate, and today, more than ever, we have to realize that communicating with our community is really a huge priority for law enforcement. So now you train uh, information officers and, and obviously there's many law enforcement agencies that they just shove someone in that position and they expect them to uh, deal with the media and with little training, little knowledge. Um, so obviously, explain the importance of someone actually getting the training and understanding. Yeah, it's a real challenge, and I think uh, law enforcement professionals are finally starting to realize the importance of communications. Saying the wrong thing can almost be as bad as a bad police officer use of force or a bad police officer involved shooting. Um, we've got to realize, and law enforcement is getting to that point, they're realizing that Boy, making sure that we say the right thing at the right time so folks can do the right thing at the end of the day is really important. And law enforcement, I think in the United States, has been a little bit behind um, our friends in, in Britain, in Australia, and in Canada in realizing the importance of communications, but we're starting to get there. Now you started in Canada. I did. Yes. Okay. So. Um, big difference between there and the U.S. and dealing with the media, similar? Uh, significant differences only in the fact that I do believe Canada was a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to understanding the importance of communications. Um, however, very much like the United States, most police departments had sworn public information officers, so police officers that were public information officers. There's a challenge there because when you become a police officer, you're probably not thinking that you're going to be a media person or you're going to be communicating with the media on a regular basis. Uh, I was one of the, the first two civilian public information officers in Canada. I had a very smart chief who realized maybe it would be a good idea to have someone who has some communications or media background. Uh, here in the United States, there is a move towards hiring people with either public relations, communications, or journalism, broadcast journalism background. I honestly think the best combination is having sworn members that are police officers and professional staff or civilian members that have an understanding of communication because working together, they can absolutely make sure we're communicating what we need to communicate. Now you talked to grabbing people with that sort of in their background. So what was your background? What brought you to uh, working as a PIO in Canada? You know, I always wanted to be a cop, but I was too short. Uh, at five foot three and three quarters, didn't quite make that five six uh, height restriction. So even though I always wanted to be a police officer, I knew at that point I couldn't be one. Um, so I went into public relations, uh, worked in professional sports for a number of years. And I know that doesn't sound like it would translate over, but seriously, um, communications and public relations strategies and tactics are really the same across most um, disciplines. Um, that interest 
interest was still there. I was working as a journalist, a broadcast journalist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, when I had the opportunity to talk to the, the current chief of police that was there and said, I think you're missing the boat on being able to communicate some issues that were going on in their department. And fortunate for me, uh, within 30 days of after having that conversation, I was now working with Halifax Regional Police and it was the beginning of an amazing career. So now you, you talked about being in sports and really uh, maybe be hard to make that connection, but honestly, in, certainly the sports industry is a business and they're there as far as their money and it's about their image. And so certainly in public service, it's about our image and bringing that across. And that's something I know that uh, you speak about highly in trying to correct that image and, and bring that image. So if you could sort of just talk about you know, the, the purpose in that, the, the importance in that in, in law enforcement. Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing that up. I am really passionate about it, and I think a lot of folks might think, you know, wh why do police care about their public image? Well, public image of police go back years and years. It's not something that's brand new. Um, Sir Robert Peel talked about it uh, in England years and years and years ago when he said the public are the police and the police are the public. Folks need to understand, and law enforcement needs to understand, that we need to develop a trusting, legitimate relationship with our communities in order for us to be able to do our job. If the community doesn't trust their police, if the community doesn't believe their police, if a community has no transparency with their police department, they're not going to help us. And, and the, the tie between clearance rates, for example, I mean, that's a term that cops understand. It is absolutely true that if you have a great relationship with your community, your clearance rates are going to go up because you're going to have folks that will talk to people. You're going to have a shooting scene or a homicide scene where the community's going to feel free and comfortable talking with you because they trust you. If you have a non-trusting community, you're not going to get that information. And you will really see when it comes to that image of the department, when there's trust, when there's a feeling that the police department is professional, that they care about the community, that they're well-trained, you are going to have a much better relationship. It's going to keep our community safer. It's going to push our clearance rates up. It's also going to keep our cops a lot safer. So I think when folks think about about communication and branding for law enforcement. They think about unicorns and butterflies. Um, and one of the things that I talk about is it's not about that. It's about safety in our community. It's about working together. Um, NYPD has, I think, one of the best, and I don't even want to call it a slogan, but it's, it's, it's the best cornerstone for public safety day. And, and what they say is community safety is a shared responsibility. And folks are now realizing the only way that becomes a shared responsibility is by developing that trust. How do we develop that trust? Communication. Well, and you brought that shared responsibility and something that, uh, you know, you had written an article and you spoke about and it's sort of ingrained in police culture is talking about the sheepdog, right? And with uh, uh, Carl Grossman, who goes around and teaches about it, and is a great speaker uh, and, and certainly passionate about the safety of officers. But uh, you've sort of uh, taken that term and think that it somewhat divides uh, the public. It does, and, and I totally understand that, you know, we are, we are the sheepdog, you know, the community is the sheep. But I think we really need to look a little bit deeper into that. When we make that divide, even with the thin blue line, and I'm the first one that admits I have a thin blue line license plate the, on the front of my truck, um, we're making a division between us and the community. And we're essentially saying, community, you are sheepdog, or, you know, you are sheep. Um, that's really not very complimentary. Um, and by the way, 
you have no responsibility for safety. I am the person that is responsible for public safety. I am the one that will protect you from everything that's bad. That then says to the community, by the way, you can abdicate any responsibility you have for safety. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the person who will keep you safe. I think we need to rethink that a little bit in the fact that we gotta work together. We are safer working together. And the more the community sees that they are part of the public safety equation, that is going to make our community safer. NYPD made a huge change to neighborhood policing of having police officers in every neighborhood. And it really goes back to the policing, how it was in the past, where you just had folks walking the streets, people knew everybody, and someone would come up to the community or someone would come up to a community officer and say, hey, did you know this guy is doing this? And that's how you get intel. You know, any good homicide detective, any good gang detective, any good counterterrorism uh, detective is going to tell you, we got to get information from the public. That's the only way we're going to be ahead of the game. And that means erasing that thin blue line and having those conversations. Now, and we've talked about the community on many times. I mean, it's not just about public safety. It seems that uh, police are where everything gets turned to, right? If they have trouble with anything that there's not an answer, uh, then, then the police are handling it. And so, again, that's back to that community relations. And you brought up earlier, you know, uh, Robert Peel, that, you know, community policing is nothing new. I mean, it, it's really, you know, many years old. It, it goes back uh, to the beginning of what we consider modern policing. Uh, we can change the term. We can call it whatever we want today. But it's, it's still about that community and relationship. Do you find out, you, you brought up New York, and I know that you work there. Uh, and it's a fascinating department and so many resources. Right. I mean, I think there are 40,000 40, 40, officers. Yeah, I mean, there are 36,000 officers, about 52,000 employees. Yep. So the difference between a department of that size and down to the 10-man, the 12-man department, uh, is it just important? Do they, how do they still accomplish the same goal? It's granular. Um, in, in New York, we go down to specific neighborhoods, and they're, they're true geographic neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of police departments are now starting to understand that perhaps electoral boundaries aren't a true boundary of a, a real neighborhood. And by putting officers in the neighborhood coordination officers in these unique neighborhoods in New York, all of a sudden, you have a police department of 10 people or 20 people. And the importance of getting to know folks is so key to neighborhood policing or community-oriented policing or, or whatever the term you want to use. It's really getting to know folks and letting folks feel comfortable in talking to the police officers. What, one of the things that they found um, pretty interesting in New York when, when they implemented um, neighborhood policing was that the cops were giving their phone numbers. And people in the, in the stores and in the community are like, this cop gave me his or her phone number. And, and look, I, I can call them. And, and they actually answer the phone. <laughs> or I can text them. 
you know, because of course nobody phones anybody anymore. We're just texting. And the amount of information that they're gleaning from the community is huge. I mean, to the point, if you join the NYPD now, part of your training as a recruit is going to spend time in a community, going to spend time in a neighborhood and learning about it and meeting those community influencers because every community across the country has those informal influencers, not necessarily elected officials, that are kind of the, 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 the leader in that community. Those are the folks that we got to get to know. Those are the folks that are going to give us a lot of information that we need in law enforcement to keep our community safe. So by New York doing this, what was it immediate result? Did it come over time? I mean, what, what were the results that have come of this or seen of this besides the relationship? What's happened to crime? The, the results speak for themselves. Uh, crime has been at historic lows in New York, and it truly is on the backs of the hard work of the men and women on the street, uh, the detective bureau, and, and, and everyone else. But the the cultural shift towards neighborhood policing, you know, it's tough. It's 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 tough to sh shape, you know, to move the culture of a department that's that big to understand the value of this. But one of my uh, one of the most telling things. Um, Red Hook, uh, a, a part of New York that had challenges uh, in dealing with its police officers. We were there talking to some folks there, and there was a gentleman, a young gentleman, uh, said to us, he says, you know, back a number of years ago before neighborhood policing, when I saw the police, I would put my hands up. And he says, now when I see the police, I put my hand out. And to me, that is such an extraordinary exemplification of what neighborhood policing is about, that, that we were able to affect a person's perception of their police and their law enforcement by that, that interaction was huge. And, and I think that's something that I, I really talk a lot about too. Neighborhood policing and, and community relations isn't the PIO's job. It isn't the chief's job. It's every single employee of a department or an office's job. So not just the patrol officers, not just the professional staff or the, or the civilians that work there. It's everybody's job because that one interaction, that one interaction a police officer may have with someone in the community is going to form their opinion. And that's huge. And I think that's really important that police agencies and especially police leaders impart to every in their department from the day that they join, from the day that they're a recruit with that department representing. Well, it's something that you had brought up, and you know, we're taught it, but it really sticks that you know, a police officer may make 15, 30 traffic stops in a shift and uh, not actually remember any of the people. They're doing their job. They're, they're enforcing the law, and, uh, but every person uh, that you speak to, if you ask them how many times were you stopped on traffic or to talk about that traffic stop, they remember it for life. So the interaction that we have that we consider part of our job, and uh, not to dismiss it, it's, it's just part of what we do, it's what we love to do, and, and we're there, but uh, we don't have those same memories, and the impact that it has to the public uh, plays a huge factor. It absolutely does. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I remember the, I've one traffic ticket, um, and I got that traffic ticket, I think I was 21 years old, and I still remember the interaction I had with that police officer. It was benign. It was nothing. He gave me a ticket. I signed my name. I got my ticket. But I remembered it. I remember that he was professional. I remember that he was kind. My arm was in a cast, and, 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 and he was very helpful. And those are the words that I then used to describe the Toronto Police Service. 
Um, that is, is and, and it's, I think it's really difficult for officers to understand the um, effect that they have on, on folks. And even, and I think it's really important that we as leaders in law enforcement remind our cops what an important role they pay, play. Um, I've had the, the good fortune and blessing to work with Bill Bratton uh, a number of times, former NYPD commissioner and, and chief of LAPD. And one of Bill, one of the things that Bill says is that cops count, police matter. And I think that's important that every cop understand that everything they do, it does matter. And it's it's hard for police officers, especially if they're serving in really challenging environments where not a lot of people like them, where you're not often getting a wave with five fingers. Um, I think it's really important that we get those officers to see that not everyone in a community has horns and a tail. And making sure that we expose our officers to the majority the people in our community that want to see us succeed, that want to help us, and that they see they're doing good work in their communities. Uh, in, in Baltimore, I'll never forget, we were in, we were in a, a, a pretty tough neighborhood, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and officers were dealing with a, with a gang issue down the street. And I just walked up the street, and it was the middle of summer, and it was really hot. And there was a senior citizen that was sitting on her front porch. And I said, ma'am, can I come up and, and chat with you? And she goes, as long as nobody sees you. You know, she had that concern. So I came up on the porch and I said, um, does, does this bother you? Do, are, are, you know, are, are you having issues with, with gang members? And she says, I just keep to myself. I stay in the house during the day and I'll come out and sit quietly kind of in the back of my porch at night. And I said, well, why, you know, why can't you move away? And she said, well, I can't. This is my family's home. This is where I lived all my life. And she was so sweet. And I went, this, this, is, this is why police are here. And so I made a point to go back down the street after, after the cops were finished dealing what they were dealing. I said, you need to come and meet this lady. Because that gave them the why. Because sometimes they're dealing with people that aren't happy to see them over and over and over, shift after shift after shift. Right, they start wondering, why am I here? Right. What's the purpose? And then when they had the opportunity to meet this lovely woman, all of a sudden you go, ah, oh, now I know why I'm here. I'm here protecting this lady. I'm here, I'm here trying to, to allow her to live a life that she wants to live. And I think that's really important that, that all of our officers are exposed to the majority of good people in their communities. So now you, one of your expertise is going into challenging places such as Baltimore during difficult times and trying to, uh, I say, turn it around and, and bring a better image and those type of things, something that you're an expert in. Uh, where do you start? Where do you start when, when a department is in crisis uh, that needs help with their image, that needs uh, to rebrand or, or otherwise? Uh, tough question. Every department is unique. Um, I think the first thing is going in with a chief or sheriff that is brave. Um, it's a brave undertaking for a leader. I, I, I as, as a support to a, to a chief or sheriff or chief executive, can do nothing um, without them being brave and without be them being smart. Uh, I've had the very good fortune of working for some brilliant, brilliant uh, police leaders in my time, and I, I've learned everything that, that I know uh, from them. But it really takes someone who is brave, who's dedicated uh, to the men and women and to the community and where they serve, to one, 
take a look at something and say, okay, we need to make some change. Because, you know, there's two things that cops hate, status quo and change. Um, and when you're in there, especially if you're going to touch culture, oh, that's, that's a tough one. So the leadership needs to understand the value of brand and image and communication and why we want to do it. It's not just putting lipstick on a pig, pardon the pun, um, and just saying, oh, we're going to make this look good. I'm not a spin doctor, and I tell people in, in the classes, the public, the public information officers and other folks I get to deal with, this is not about spinning. This is not about creating some smoke and mirror image. That's not what this is about. Any chief that says, hey, you need to come and help my department have a better image, my first question is typically, well, what are you going to do? Right. What, what are you going to do to change? He goes, well, that's what you're supposed to do. No, no, no. What are you going to do as a leader to change the culture, to change what is happening, to be the image that you want me to sell? So is that professionalism? Is it integrity? Is it constitutional policing? Is it the value of diversity? Once you put that into play, I will be your biggest cheerleader in making sure everyone knows that. But what I'm not going to do is try to sell a bill of goods. If, if you're actually not doing all those things, nothing's going to help you. But there has to be investment from them. There has to be, obviously. hundred percent. Uh, they're the leader of the department. Uh, you're a supporter of their vision uh, to drive. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So you've, you've been in Baltimore and Atlanta and some larger cities, and, and obviously, uh, those things uh, very diverse in their communities and trying to serve so many people. You know, how do you uh, take care of a community that has so many different views, values, and uh, I mean, obviously, I would assume all want safety, but uh, absolutely. Uh, how do you address everyone? Obviously, you can't make everybody happy. Well, you can try. Uh, you know, if everyone's safe, I think that would make everybody happy. I think there's a couple things. Um, one, I think cities need to realize, and most cities realize this, that public safety really is the cornerstone of economic viability. Um, right away, if the city understands that a city can be economically viable because there's strong public safety, it truly is the cornerstone. Um, so first of all, you, you, you need this, the support there. But then it's really important that the leadership of any police agency not limit their listening to that groupthink group of folks, right? There is no police leader in the world, from Bill Bratton to Ed Flynn to Tony Batts to Michael Burko to everyone I work with that says, I know everything. And um, what I think in, in my small group is, is going to understand everybody. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of community advisory boards where we bring in folks of every different part of our community, whether it be our LGBTQ2 communities, whether it be our Hispanic communities, our Asian communities, our business communities, our education communities, and listen. That's what it starts with. What are the issues that you're dealing with? How do you want to be communicated with? One of the mistakes that law enforcement has made in the past, and, and changes are happening, especially with social media, is that we've decided this is how we are going to communicate to you. You shall come to a town hall meeting. You know what? Nobody wants to come to a town hall meeting anymore. Uh, no one has time. We're all busy. We got kids. We got this. We got that. So we need to listen. How do you want to be communicated with? 
Some people still might want to come and sit down with the chief of police and, and listen to the chief talk about things. That's great. But what's important to you as a community? And I think everybody respects you know, we have to respect as well. Uh, we have to respect people's opinions. We might not agree with everyone's opinion, that's fine. But we need to find a way to have that respectful conversation and to understand that people's perceptions are formed by the way they were raised, their educational background, their gender, the, you know, all these different things, their education, their socioeconomic background, and people see things differently. Everybody looks at a police officer and sees something different, and we have to respect that and understand that. And kind of in the past, we might have been our worst enemy because we weren't out there trying to explain what we really are. We were allowing traditional media to do that for us. So we kind of missed the boat a little bit in allowing someone else to form that public opinion for us when we maybe should have been paying a little bit more attention to it. So you talk about in the past of traditional media, and then obviously things have changed drastically over the year uh, between uh, social media, between uh, just the access to information. Mm -hmm. um, so. Going back, I guess, uh, before even social media, just the fact of things being able to be shared on the computer, challenges that a PIO has faced from that. <laughs> Where do you start and how much time do you have? Um, look, at the biggest challenge today, media itself hasn't changed. You know, what yellow journalism, you know, back in the 1800s, that's essentially, it's come around again. Um, back then, during the times when, Okay, I'm not aging myself because I wasn't alive when this was happening, but I've heard that back in the day, kids would be on the corners going, extra, extra, read all about it, the Titanic sunk. And then there's a kid on another corner going, extra, extra, read all about it, 5,000 dead in icy waters. And whoever had the better headline sold that newspaper. Right. That's what we're dealing with today with social media. Whoever has the better com combination of headline and picture is gonna get the click, which is gonna make money for somebody down the road. So media hasn't changed. Uh, titillation, that still sells, you know, scandal, still sells, divisiveness still sells, corruption still sells. But what has changed is the speed, you know. Back when the Titanic sunk, it took us how many days, how many weeks to get that information, and if you didn't buy a paper, you know, there was no television, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to television, uh, a homicide happened at five after 11. You weren't gonna hear about it till maybe eight o'clock the next morning, or maybe noon if you didn't have a morning newscast, or maybe if there wasn't a morning and noon, not till you get your newspaper that afternoon, or watch the six o'clock news. Now today, Got the 24-hour news cycle. And the public is often finding out about issues before law enforcement even does. It's, it's really shocking how quickly information gets out. And, and it all started, uh, the, first, the first story to truly break on social media, big national news story to break on social media on Twitter, was um, the Miracle on the Hudson. That was broke on Twitter before traditional news media broke it. And that was in New York City. Traditional news media not so happy when that happened, right? So that it's, it's really the speed, and that is the biggest challenge because media can be wrong and say, oh, we were wrong, here's the right information. Law enforcement can't. And, and as you know, and, and I know anybody watching this who's in law enforcement knows, 
you can't walk into a crime scene and look around and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what happened. I know the MO. I, I know who did it. I know why and I know how. And walk out and have that exactly true. It's not. But that's what today's society expects. And we have to find that balance. And some of that comes from what we call CSI effect from TV because their crimes are solved in 30 minutes. Their of crimes course. are solved in an hour. And I think in talking to people, a lot of people understand that part doesn't occur. I mean, that 30 minutes and, and whatever. But some of the technology that they've come uh, up with or that they. I'd they, love to have some of the TV technology. Uh, and they do believe that exists. Yeah, Hawaii 5 man, oh, man. Um, yeah, Hollywood has, has done a number. If, if, if people could actually see what a homicide detective's office looks like um, in a major city. It, no, nothing it, like that. It, no. It's nothing like that. Um, God bless the homicide detectives in Baltimore. Um, detectives in Baltimore in, in some of our precincts were working in the basement where cells had been taken out and they would have a piece of board across the toilet and they had jury rigged, I probably shouldn't say this because you know, OSHA's gonna come running, uh, jury rigged um, power down there and these guys are working in cells. They're working cases off a computer that's I don't know how old uh, with water dripping. Or in Atlanta, we were, we were in a headquarters building that was full of lead for years and years and, until they moved. Uh, it ain't that pretty. Um, <laughs> every cop will tell you, it's not so pretty. Uh, they're hot seating, you know. Very few, actually smaller departments um, have a better advantage of, you know, Detectives actually have their own offices. What? Major cities? No, you're hot seating. I leave. I come and sit in there. You know, it's 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 not that. And, and I agree. Um, people expect you can pull DNA off everything. Um, people expect that um, search warrants. You know, if I come knocking on your door, you have to open because if you don't, someone's going to knock in your door and, and come running in. So Hollywood has had a pretty interesting effect on law enforcement. So now, besides the, the CSI effect and those things, uh, which you bring up dealing with homicide, the PIO should have a very good working relationship with homicide. I mean, major crimes and robberies and those type of things, that's mainly what you're going to get called about, is the most serious uh, crimes against persons. So uh, how do you build those relationships? What, what do you need as the PIO? Because that's usually coming from a homicide point. We don't want certain things out. We got to build a relationship exactly. where I know you're not going to put things out that are going to harm my case. Uh, but you have to put things out. I mean, there has to be that mutual understanding of our job. So what is your job as a PIO in that role? Here's the thing. The one thing that everybody wants, the police want, the PIO wants, the community wants, and the media wants, is to make sure the bad guy is held responsible, or bad girl is held responsible for their actions, period. So as a public information officer, you have a responsibility to provide what's legally allowed to the public, but you also have to protect the investigation, like you said. So you have to think, okay, what is in the best interest of law enforcement to ensure at the end of the day, we're able to get a case on someone and make sure they're held accountable. That is, it's a very, it's a very fine balance. Um, you asked at the beginning, what does a PIO need to do, that relationship? It's a relationship of trust. Um, I don't think there's any brand new public information officer who's ever come on the job, whether they're an officer or whether they're a professional staff that have come in, a lot of times a former journalist. Uh, I worked for five years in the media before I, I went to law enforcement, and there's this 
you're one of them. You know, you're, 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 you're one of the, you know, you're one of those people. How am I going to trust you? And it's building that relationship. It's sitting with the guys and talking with them. It's sitting with them and going, look it, if we do this, the media is going to cover it this way. If we provide this, this is what's going to happen. Um, I'll go back many, many years ago to Halifax when it's a, it's a give and take. So I had, we had a, a young woman and her, her daughter that were strangled in their home. Um, we, we knew who the perpetrator was. We knew the perpetrator was the, the, the boyfriend. You know, we, we knew it. But of course, the homicide detectives say, don't say that the perpetrator is known to, to the victims. And I went, if I don't say that at, on a Friday night of a long weekend, the entire city is gonna be freaking out that some stranger is breaking into houses and, kill. and, and killing mothers and babies. Do we really want that to happen? And they're like, who? So it, it's it could, because you see it from a different way, right? The homicide investigator is very focused on this. And I said, is that what we want? Do we want to create that panic? And, and by the way, the bad guy knows we're looking for him. You know, because it's always like, well, we don't want the bad guy know to know. The bad guy knows. The bad guy knows he did it. So let's just say that you know we believe that the perpetrator was known to the victims, and 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 it, it was fine that way. I, I get it. And I've had homicide. You know, <laughs> I mean, these are funny stories, but they happen. I've had a homicide detective. I got a body in the middle of the street with you know with the steak knife in the heart. Don't say he was stabbed. Okay, but everybody's here with their cameras taking pictures. Um, the media have shots of it. There's a big pool of blood. Everyone has taken pictures of it and posted it to social media. What would you like me to say? I can't say that that's how he died. But if someone says he stabbed, I'm going to say he stabbed. And, and it's it's... It's a balance. I get the, you know, they, look at, honestly, homicide investigators probably wouldn't want us to say anything about anything. But on the other hand, I think now that there's a beginning of a realization, especially when it comes to crowdsourcing, how valuable information from the public can be. And, and I think a lot of times now with communications, folks are starting to realize, oh, you know what, we, we in Savannah, we put the Crime Stoppers text number on crime scene tape. Because typically, somebody who knows something about what just happened is standing around, right? right? They don't want to be picking up the phone, but if they got a text there, all of a sudden, they're a little texting something to Crime Stoppers. They might provide us with that information. And today with everyone in their phone, everyone with their doorbell cameras, everyone with their security systems, um, we, th there's this plethora of video and evidence and audio evidence that is available to us that probably wasn't available to us even five years ago. And I think now investigators and law enforcement is realizing, wow, the more information we can get, I mean, if I can get a crowdsource of video, we had uh, a terror attack in, in New York a couple of years ago on, on, uh, on Halloween night. Um, everybody's standing there with their phone. And we've got officers going, oh, how, how do I get what was on your phone? Because that's going to be valuable evidence to us. And the FBI at that point was able to give us their crowdsourcing software. Today, there's crowdsourcing software and there's crowdsourcing avail availabilities everywhere. And let me tell you, I think that's a game changer. I think a lot, there's, there's a lot more public safety because people are starting to realize 
there's cameras everywhere. And, and we're probably going to catch you when, when you do something. But you do have to have that relationship with your community for them to send it in. And it also goes back to that relationship with the media that we need them just as much. Uh, whether cops like to admit that or not, when we want to find someone, when we have a missing person, when we have a suspect, when we need to get information out to the public, you know, uh, we do have other options now with social media, and we'll go into that. But uh, like here in our Houston metro area, uh, most of the police departments, even the larger ones, uh, maybe have 100,000 followers, 400,000. Uh, our news stations in Houston have 6 million, right? I mean, so... You know, there's a huge difference in getting that information out. So you've spoke that the PIO uh, normally is not linked or tied uh, to the investigative unit. They report to admin. They are part of... Hopefully to the chief executive. Not right. just to admin, but to the chief executive. Right. So why is it? It's hugely important that whoever the head of that public information team is, um, you know, you, you might actually have a team of five or six officers in a big department or one, one person in, in a smaller department. They need to have direct access to the chief executive because part of the PIO's job is to tell the emperor when they're not wearing any clothes. Uh, it's not comfortable, but sometimes the boss needs to understand um, boss, if you do this, this is what the community is going to see and hear. It, it, your job is to be, the PIO's job is to be that sounding board. If you do this, um, by the way, I'm going to be the fire prevention officer. If you do this, this is how the public might perceive it. So maybe we should think about doing it a different way. When bad news happens and, and a good public information officer has their ear to the ground with their community and has their ear to the ground with media, and if those relationships with the media I'm going to have a reporter calling me going, hey, you know, we got someone who's calling us that just said one of your officers swore at them when they did a traffic stop and we're planning on doing a story. That's a relationship. Then I can go right to the boss, whether chief, sheriff, director, superintendent, commissioner, and say, uh, boss, we got something brewing here. So I'm going to start preparing something. Here's the thing. If I, as a PIO, had to then report through captain who reported through a major who reported to a chief of staff who then reported to the, the chief or the sheriff, guess what? Anything that's bad tends to get a little bit watered down. Play so the by, telephone game. There you go. Right. So by the time by the time the chief hears that, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna hear some idiot thinks our cop was was unprofessional. Okay, no, um, that was actually a you know well-respected businessman in the community, and he has it on video. And the officer swore you know swore at him for half an hour. So that's one of the reasons. And the other is goes back to speed. You have to be able to make decisions to release information very very quickly. And if we have to do an approval chain of five people before the chief executive can approve it to get it back to the PIO, you you're lost. Uh, we talk in the PIO world is that you got about three minutes. In a crisis, when something bad happens because of social media, you got about three minutes to set a narrative, to get out there with a message saying, hey, this is what's happening. We're looking into it. This is what you can be doing. This is what we're doing. Because if you've developed that trusting relationship with your, with your community, they're looking to you. Hey, do you know this is happening? What, what are you doing? And we've got to be able to do that. If it takes half an hour for someone to approve us saying we're aware of it, come on. It's, the, the horse is out of the barn. I mean, it's, 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 it's useless. It's not going to work for you. So now talking about social media, which certainly has been a game changer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in our world, uh, positive and negative. 
uh, game changer. But uh, to what we're just speaking of, while you're not putting it out, and the media may have given you a heads up that you they're going to put it out, there's nothing stopping the person who initially recorded it from putting it out. Yeah. Or witnesses that see it. I mean, and I think one of the biggest challenges we face is the the unknown of what's already out there by our department. So uh, how do we build those relationships? You are in media, so if I'm a new PIO, how do I build that relationship with my local media? Whew, um, a lot of it is like, how do you build a relationship with anybody? It's visiting, it's learning about their job. I encourage, especially uh, sworn PIOs, to go sit, do a ride along with your local reporter. Find out the pressures that they're under, find out what their goals and objectives are. Every television station, every media outlet has different um, different demographics that they cater to. You know, some, some of your television stations are the, you know, you paid for it, where your investigative, you know, journalism group or you know where your where your friendly neighborhood backyard television station you got to have an understanding of what motivates that reporter and and even reporters themselves some reporters are very motivated by I got to get the big story because I want to I, I want to be a reporter in New York City or Washington DC or LA they're gonna want to do stories in a very different way than someone who says boy I'm really happy living in this community I want to be a reporter here for the next 30 years so that reporter is going to want to develop a positive relationship with their with their police, especially if they're a police reporter, because they're going to be there for a number of years. Someone else who's like, I can hardly wait to get out of here is going to come in and do, I want to do that hard hitting police are horrible story so I can get out of here and move up because because no one's getting promoted to New York on a let's do a unicorns and butterfly stories about the new police canine. Right. So I think that's really important is to develop those relationships. I don't know who said it, but there's that great, great quote about it's hard to hate up close. Um, Getting to know folks, and not and not only the public information officer, chief of police, or the sheriff, or or you know, or the constable, has to get to know the media. Sit down with editorial boards. Understand what is the motivation on both sides. What because at the end of the day, you talk to any traditional media outlet. What they want to do truly is provide good information to the public. They really do. I don't think there's one media outlet out there that's that's saying, oh, we we are in business to screw the police. Now, they are all in business. Don't get me wrong. It, Money is, a, it is, is a business. Huge business. Most television stations especially are owned by about five conglomerates uh, in the United States. And those conglomerates report to shareholders, shareholders demand a profit, and there are ways that people make you watch TV. Um, that's why crises are good. Crises is a good thing because when a crisis is happening, people are watching TV. When there is weather coming in, why do they spend so much time on weather? Because people turn on the TV when there's potential bad weather. So yeah, it's a business, but at the end of the day, seriously, especially, look at, I, I think if you look especially at um, natural disasters, you are going to see the cooperation between media and, and emergency services is pretty extraordinary because everyone just wants to make sure people are taken care of. Is there gonna be rumor? Is there gonna be false information that's disseminated? Absolutely. There was a recent MIT study that came out that says that false information travels, I believe, and I, I don't want to say don't quote me on this because here we are on a podcast, um, <laughs> but I think it travels seven times faster 
than truth because false information tends to be, oh, this is something new, oh, this is cool, and they put it out, right? It's true shocking, it's unbelievable. Th- yeah, right. exactly, because it really is. Uh, true information is like, oh, okay, this is happening. Everyone already has this, so I'm not gonna retweet it. I'm not gonna repost it. But if it's something new and, and kind of fascinating, oh, we need to retweet this. So it, it, that's what makes the huge challenge for law enforcement is really the rumor control, and rumor control, has really taken up a lot bigger time now in a public information officer's job because rumor control used to be, well, we have to wait to watch the six o'clock news to see what they say. And if that was right, great. If it was wrong, maybe we can get them to do a retraction, which which is useless now. But today, the rumors show up on the internet and spread like wildfire. And if you don't nip those in the bud, oh, you'll be chasing after rumors and, and they get legs. Thank you for listening to Crime Scene today. Tune in next week when we talk to Chief Banks from Round Rock, Texas, in reference to his project that he had put together called Operation Front Porch. If you have a question for Chief Banks or a question for the show or topics you'd like to see, reach out to me at dan at crimescenetoday.com. We'll see you next week.